manufacturing and particularly smart manufacturing and the, the idea of digital transformation. That's where manufacturing leadership is. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 142. Today, we're discussing how to accelerate smart manufacturing adoption in the United States. Our guest this week is John Dyke, the CEO of SESME. SESME is a nonprofit institute in the U.S. dedicated to smart manufacturing that's democratizing the tools and technologies needed to bring smarter manufacturing operations to life. Now, if you're a regular listener, you don't need me to tell you that smarter manufacturing operations result in reduced costs, less complexity, quicker time to value, all of these things that make companies in the U.S. manufacturing industry as a whole more competitive on a global scale. Now, John has a wealth of knowledge, and I've said this on and off camera before, that he is someone I've wanted to have on this show for a long time. So here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we're going to learn about John's background that led him to SESME and what he's learned by always finding himself in roles that put him on the bleeding edge of manufacturing technology. Second, we get a lot of background on smart manufacturing in the U.S. specifically. We'll hear about the state of its adoption in the United States and why there is now a sense of urgency to accelerating its adoption. Finally, we'll talk about how to adopt smart manufacturing technologies, and I'll say that the tech is only one part of this conversation. As always, if you want to learn more, you can do that at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 142. That's 142. And you can think of this as like a smart manufacturing resource page. We'll get into some of the specifics in this interview, but if you hear something and you're like, hey, I need to write that down, well, we've tried to craft the show notes page so that it can be a go-to resource for you. Hey, if you learn something new from this episode, my call to action for you before you start listening, hey, share a link to this episode on LinkedIn, as well as your biggest takeaway from this conversation. Anyway, it's time to meet up with John Dyke for today's conversation around smart manufacturing. John, this interview has been a long time in the making. We've known one another for a long time. We've always known says me and manufacturing happy hour or a fit for one another, but excited to finally have you on the show and hear your story. Yeah, Chris, it's a, it's a real honor to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for a while and uh, I've been looking on with admiration over the years to see what you've been doing and how you've been such an advocate of this space. And uh, like I said, pleased to be here with you today. Well, in true manufacturing happy hour fashion, the first question has to be, we're doing this interview remotely over coffee in the morning, but if we were having this in person over a beverage later in the afternoon, where would that be? Paint the picture for us. Well, there's a there's a, a beautiful park uh, just outside Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, there, there's The Rockefeller family has, has uh, done this in multiple spots over the over the continent uh, in terms of buying up vast tracts of land in beautiful places from the U.S. to the Virgin Islands and and, um, and then giving that land back to the to the country as as part of the larger park system. And in and, and one of those family retreats uh, outside of Jackson Hole, there's this cabin overlooking the lake, a private lake with a mountain as a backdrop. And and uh, that's that's my happy place. That's that's where. We've been several times, and and uh, it's a it's an incredible spot to enjoy a beverage. Love to do that again, some in the short term future. I was going to say, uh, having a drink, talking smart manufacturing with the Tetons in the background sounds pretty nice. So uh, let's let's transport ourselves to Wyoming. I've got two questions for you to kick things off, as as if we were having a beer with one another. The first is describe smart manufacturing, you know, as if you're hanging out around the campfire out there. All right, so we'll dispense with the formal definitions which we have and which are helpful when we're talking about the the technicalities of smart manufacturing. But the long and the short of it is it's it's the initiative, it's the catalyst, it's the it's the business imperative of 
strategically leveraging your data assets as a way to improve your productivity and your performance in your manufacturing operations. Many, most manufacturers have done a great job eking out as much capacity and, and productivity as they can with their existing assets, but there's a shocking, um, in a good way, a shocking amount of productivity and capacity available for almost every manufacturer in leveraging the data, your own data, uh, when properly used in your operations or from your operations. And so that's what smart manufacturing is all about, looking for and strategically leveraging your data as an asset for your manufacturing operations. There's, there's a, the trite sort of, but, but also helpful idea of uh, the right information in the right way, in the right place, for the right person. That That's also perhaps a slightly more glib way of saying that, but it's fundamentally about leveraging your data for your productivity in your operations. Yeah, I heard you come through with the data answer loud and clear there. We're going to get more into that as we get later into the interview. The second question is, is, is if we're kicking back over porters there uh, with the Tetons uh, in the distance, is how do you describe SESME as if you're having a beverage with someone then? How do you describe what you do? So we have a, the awesome privilege of using federal funds and the mandate from the federal government to invest in the ideas, the research, the capabilities, the knowledge, the insights, the technologies that will accelerate the adoption of smart manufacturing. We talk about the democratization of smart manufacturing, which is a fancy word for driving accessibility by reducing cost and complexity. That's our vision. That's our mandate. And along the way, we'll, we'll drive energy productivity, energy efficiency, all of those great sort of value propositions that are part of a great sustainable manufacturing operation. So we have a mandate to create a more competitive manufacturing operation here for, for U.S. manufacturers. And, and we, we have um, the, the backing of the federal government and the funding from them to convene the bright minds and uh, the organizations across this great space and try to help as many manufacturers as possible along the way. Yeah, John, I look at SESME as one of the more unique cross-sections in our industry, right? Where you have the government backing, you're working a ton with institutions, companies, et cetera. So it's a, it's a great organization that that I've obviously ad admired from afar for a long time as well. So, you know, with, with that background and some of the fundamentals or the foundation of today's conversation, the next thing we want to do is get to know you a little bit because You've been leading SESME since, I believe, 2018, but you have a long history before that. So how did you get started in this space? I, I believe you're, you were at GE for a while in a place called Active, uh, Active Plant before that, correct? Take us through that initial part of the journey. Yeah, so I, I was able to work for Rockwell Automation right out of college after 13 years there uh, in both Canada and the U.S. I was privileged to help a friend of mine raise some venture capital in Ontario, Canada, and raise raise funds for create a software startup for um, a manufacturing intelligence platform, an enterprise manufacturing intelligence platform called Active Plant. Um, we were adopted by most of the large automotive players from Ford and Chrysler, uh, Toyota North America, uh, Nissan, Honda, many others that led a lot of the tier one suppliers, Gillette, Procter & Gamble, uh, McCain Foods. Um, so, so we were, we were 22 years ago, we were, we were the first enterprise manufacturing intelligence platform in this space. In fact, we helped coin the term with AMR research back in the day around EMI. And uh, that was acquired. I was hired by GE to lead their global prophecy software business. Um, and, and then Rockwell invited me to come back and help uh, lead their strategic business development uh, function within Rockwell Automation for their software business. And so I got to help uh, work. Uh, in fact, I did, did the math recently. I, I interviewed and, and um, had conversations about potential acquisition uh, by Rockwell Automation with over 100 small and large software companies uh, through, through that time there and, and just got a, a a fascinating glimpse into the uh, broader manufacturing software ecosystem. And uh, one more really important formative uh, experience on my side was the privilege to work on the board of directors with MESA, the Manufacturing Enterprise Solutions Association, 
for over 10 years, including two stints as the chairman of the board there. Uh, that was that was a, a great exposure for me of most of the big players in the space and a lot of the a lot of the more disruptive, innovative players in this space. And what I found there was was uh, that we all struggled with a very similar set of industry dynamics. We we were all building and selling and implementing level three manufacturing systems from MES to EMI to quality, et cetera. And, and we were all struggling with, with no exceptions. The adoption of this stuff, the implementation, the selling of this stuff is hard. And, and that caused me to look and think deeply at what those constraints are. Why, why, I believe this is the hardest space in manufacturing. It's harder than ERP. It's harder than virtually any functional software or capability deployment in this space. And, and so, so I'll pause there, but, but just, just the, the broad experience across the ecosystem to, to recognize how complex this is, that we're all struggling with the same sort of constraints and, and challenges and, and headwinds. And, and, and then obviously coming here to Sesame four and a half years ago to um, with, with the mandates and the funds to help address some of those challenges. I have a couple questions. Is it first, first and foremost, just to get this out there? Is it fair to say you've always spent, or, or maybe a common thread throughout a lot of your career has been a bit more on this cutting edge, getting into software and manufacturing before everyone else was into it? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, of course it is. Um, I, I I recognized that early on in my career that I, I was um, I just found myself gravitating towards that bleeding edge. And that's uh, that's kind of a fun place. It's it's not an easy place, but it's a fun place to be, particularly given that manufacturers uh, don't often aren't often organizations you would consider as as uh, quick to adopt technologies. But what 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 that has done is allowed me to work with a lot of great forward thinking companies, manufacturing companies, uh, technology providers, systems integrators, um, machine builders along the way who are early adopters and who understand the value and who who have been uh, very forward-looking in trying to drive this industry forward in these ways. So, yeah, that's probably why I don't have a lot of hair left, Chris. <laughs> probably exactly that. I uh, well, well, there's there's a practical reason for that question because I'm thinking of what can what can people learn from you in this conversation, right? I feel like there are a lot of folks in the manufacturing space that try new things, try to push new ideas, whether it's with their company, their management, their board, whomever it may be. And they struggle, they don't get traction and, you know, maybe they give up, you know, with those new ideas, right? But you've made a career out of this. You've been doing this for decades. So what's your advice to folks to stick with it, to keep pushing for things that they know are right for their business, the industry as a whole, et cetera? I think that's a great question, Chris, I think, uh, and a great conversation to have. But the there's a there's a healthy balance between where I was with the starry-eyed vision 25 years ago and the pragmatic constraints that as an industry we we have to recognize and 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 that brings me to where we are today I think for the first time in my career manufacturing and particularly smart manufacturing and the the idea of digital transformation using data to transform the way we do work and to become more competitive and more productive, um, that's that's where manufacturing leadership is for the first time in my career. Um, it wasn't there even five years ago. I think the pandemic has done remarkable things. The fourth industrial revolution was kind of the catalyst, but the pandemic really underscored for most manufacturers how important data can be, um, both in terms of responding to the significant operational and worker related challenges, but also in responding to severe fluctuation in both demand, um, whether it's increasing demand or plummeting demand. And so um, Gartner did a survey recently and found out that um, I think 88 or was it 92% of all manufacturing executives uh, now believe that smart manufacturing is vital for their strategic future. And, and uh, prior to COVID, it was well under 50%. So, so that underscores, I think, why this is such an important place to be 
and why we those of us in this space have to have to be in a position to properly educate and and inform and become trusted advisors in helping guide and shepherd the the uh, the manufacturers through these challenges. Excellent answer. I re- appreciate you reflecting on your long history. Maybe let's look at some of the recent history as well. When you know, in 2013, when you were global director for software business development at Rockwell, I'm curious, what was it like focusing on IIoT and the cloud and all these things that were just coming into the conversation back then? You've given us kind of the overall picture, but let's talk about the recent picture, because those are still areas where people are figuring out, how do I adopt the industrial Internet of Things? How do I adopt cloud technologies for my business? So so what was it like back in 2013? Yeah, I... I... I have to chuckle when I re- recall, I guess, the um, the uh, reaction to the manufacturers we had the privilege of working with back 10 years ago, I guess, that, that puts us at 10 years ago. Kind of shocking as I think about it. Um, Microsoft had just introduced Azure um, and had a team partnering with us at Rockwell Automation to drive the manufacturing marketplace towards the adoption of cloud. And of course, manufacturers not comfortable at the bleeding edge or the sort of tip of the spear in this in this way in this dimension um, were absolutely uncomfortable with the idea of moving data to the cloud. And, and to be fair, many still are, but I think that ship has sailed. Most manufacturers understand that there is a place for the cloud, and and that over time, more and more of our manufacturing portfolio will be in the cloud. But, but so I so I was investing um, and and driving Rockwell and our leadership and the organization broadly with, with a team of, of of other folks and stakeholders. Uh, we're leading our own organization to the idea of cloud and what what a gateway looks like. What is an architecture uh, for for manufacturing and cloud look like and uh and so it was a phenomenal journey uh just just working with like i said before the the forward-looking manufacturers those that had kind of an early adopter mindset and it was a particular subset of manufacturers that 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 um you, one could characterize in very specific ways to be fair it wasn't the the the, the large fortune 500 manufacturing organizations at that time, but it was a fascinating journey that that spoke to the technology, that spoke to business processes, how do you incentivize an organization, and how do you support uh, a sales organization that's now selling a subscription, not a perpetual license. All of those fascinating aspects to the, tr- the transformation of an industry, which started within our uh, environment that at that point at Rockwell Automation to um, work with all of those different stakeholder groups across this digital divide. And so it was a privilege to, to be there at the tip, tip of the spear for that transformation. And and I, I love what Rockwell Automation is is uh, continues to do in that, that space uh, to this day. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about how things are continuing to evolve or why there, there's some urgency around adopting smart manufacturing in the U.S. I heard your stat loud and clear earlier, right? Before the pandemic, 50% were believers in smart manufacturing. Pandemic rose that, I think you said to 82%, something around there. So moving in the right direction in terms of belief, but you know, belief and action are two different things. So let's start with a basic question. Why is there an urgency to adopt smart manufacturing in the U.S.? Well, I think in part, uh, there, there are some macro level statistics that I think would, would bring anyone uh, that, that understands them to the point where we recognize the, the sense of urgency here. One of them is that uh, for, for my entire career, uh, if you go to the Federal Reserve and download manufacturing productivity data from, they call it the FRED, um, it's, it's open, accessible to anyone. The data is there since roughly the early to mid 80s. For all of my career, manufacturing productivity was on a steady uh, growth incline, fairly linear, until about 2010, where it began plateauing. And five years ago, for the first time in recorded history, manufacturing productivity in the U.S. began declining. And and um, the the interesting challenge is that that's coincident with 
the post-pandemic regionalization of supply chains, the, the discussion about reshoring. We need a more productive, more competitive manufacturing environment here in the U.S. now more than ever before. And so I think smart manufacturing holds out uh, one of the significant mechanisms for that to happen. So that's one piece. Um, The other is that other manufacturing regions, including most of Europe and most of Asia, are adopting smart manufacturing at a pace that far exceeds that of the U.S. And uh, understanding those reasons is is uh, is also important, but both of those um, lead us to the point where where I think we, as a nation, need to accelerate our own efforts, our own investments in this space, um, so that we do our very best to create a more competitive and a more productive manufacturing environment here. This is our our nation is a nation of manufacturing. We've been innovators. We've been innovating and 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 innovators in this space for well over two centuries uh, to preserve that and to continue our prosperity here as a nation. I think manufacturing is going to have to continue to thrive. And that's what what this is all about. So I I was going to ask why the U.S. is lagging behind. You've answered that in a couple ways. I guess my question is then, what, what can we be learning from regions like Asia Pacific and Europe that you've said are are adopting it quicker. What are the things that those areas are doing right? There's a cultural component to that, and there's a technology component to that. Um, on the cultural side, uh, the the American way, and I and I say this as 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 an American that grew up in Canada, moved to the U.S. 15 years ago, and has become a citizen along with my family. We've recognized a. a kind of a DNA, and this is well understood here here in the U.S., there's a DNA of, of individualism and independence, and um, and that carries its way from the individual level into the manufacturing environment and business leadership as well. We, we are very independent in our approach, and the idea of a national strategy or a national approach to how we, how we do things, including manufacturing, is really a stretch for us. In, in Europe, there's a, I'll say, a well-greased machine uh, that, that brings industry and academia and government together to innovate in ways that benefit the entire nation, kind of r- the rising tide that floats all boats. Um, so for, 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 from a cultural perspective, I think there's, a, there's, there's the beginning of a recognition here in the U.S. that we can solve some of these macro-level problems together in ways that don't in, impact negatively impact our individual success or prosperity, um, but but drive the industry forward for the nation. And so I think that's that's uh, gives me a, a sense of hope for the future as well. And that's really a big part of what Sesame is all about: the idea that we convene uh, a consortia. Today we're just under two hundred um, members strong. Some of the greatest manufacturers in the country, great technology providers, including. Rockwell Automation, GE, uh, Phoenix Contact, Emerson, Aspen Tech, uh, many, many of the great technology providers in the space, great systems integrators, great machine builders and academia, of course, um, to, to solve these problems together. Um, ironically, the precedent was set 20 plus years ago in IT to, to collaborate. We talk about open source in a fairly uh, common as a fairly commonly understood thing um, for over 20 years now, but in, in the OT world, there is no such thing, right? We're, we're still largely solving problems independently. We are very proprietary still in our approach to solving problems. And I think that's that's how we change the landscape and that's how we drive accelerated adoption, the democratization of smart manufacturing here in the U.S. And that that speaks to both the cultural piece and the technology piece. There are fundamental things that we can do to uh, crowdsource and open source uh, capabilities, technologies, architectures that dramatically reduce cost and complexity for all manufacturers. And oh, by the way, that's that's how we get to the point where small, medium manufacturers can engage in these really important productivity initiatives as well. Today, 
most of most of the small medium manufacturing community struggles to engage to afford these things to to be able to sustain them with existing staff and knowledge even if they could afford them but we're encouraged about the path forward because of the uh investment and the support for this idea of democratization and and um working together to solve these problems yeah and and i I figured Zesme would probably be worked into your answer there. We're going to get into a little more detail here at, after one question. You know, I, I heard a lot of good things there. One one question that still comes to mind, a pretty specific question, because it's it's been a something that comes up on the show periodically, is something called pilot purgatory, right? People are trying these things out, but they're just not necessarily getting scaled. So my question, before we get into some of the details behind more of what Sesame's doing from the things you talked about, right? Cultural as well as technology. You know, why are people getting stuck in pilot purgatory? Maybe give us your your quick impressions on that one. Yeah, uh, there, there are at least two facets to, to my response. One is cultural, one is technology. And and uh, I'll start with the cultural one first. I think there's a there's a mindset uh, that that's really a carryover of three or four decades of what we would call Industry 3.0. And that's kind of a very um, use case centric approach to innovation. Uh, manufacturing plants or corporations, they recognize a problem. They say, okay, we're gonna invest in solving this quality or productivity or predictive maintenance problem and develop the requirements. And they go out and you know find the, the most innovative and disruptive technology provider they can to, to solve that particular need. And they put a pilot together. Well, that pilot is another architectural stovepipe. It's another data silo. It's another, um, and and now with new technologies, right? AI, machine learning, augmented reality, a lot of AI machine, sorry, a lot of uh, uh, cloud-based technologies, which the organizations uh, fundamentally, which represents a a shift and a policy retrofit and a, the technology hurdle for a lot of these organizations. So, so there's those constraints um, from a from a mindset perspective. They embarked on that journey for a pilot without recognizing that to to deploy that at scale has a significant cost associated with it. has has a transformative change management uh, cost associated with it as well. So, arguably, eighty to ninety percent of these these pilots fail for for all those reasons. And so. Um, I think the technology piece is non-trivial as well. We we have we have nothing but data silos out there. There there is no center of gravity for a strategy, a, a more strategic approach to how data infrastructure is put together in ways that enables interoperability. And so every use case, every innovation uh, is replicating the cost of infrastructure replicating the cost of that data storage, replicating that the cost of that data uh, ingestion and contextualization. And, and that makes it super complex, super heavy for the proliferation and the scale up of, of that solution. And so altogether, that represents a set of headwinds that organizations fundamentally need to address going forward. And, and again, that's, that's back to some of the key opportunities that SESME sees in enabling every technology provider to achieve time to value and value creation much, much more rapidly than we have in the past and avoiding that stovepipe architecture, avoiding putting yet another data silo in your manufacturing operation that is so difficult and costly to sustain. I I like that term stovepipe architecture. And and I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I haven't necessarily thought of it before that people go into these projects by just creating one extra data silo. But when you go after a smart manufacturing, Internet of Things, connected enterprise project by, you know, and, and don't necessarily have that scalability in mind or create things that aren't necessarily going to be able to move easily to other parts, I can see why people are getting stuck in pilot purgatory. You know, my, my next questions are around Sesame specifically, because you've talked about this a couple of times in the interview. There's a mindset, there's a culture, there's also the technology piece that needs to be overcome. So let, let's start there, because I feel like that's where we were going with our last answer. You know, how how does Sesame help address overcoming some of the technology hurdles 
to bringing smart manufacturing to life inside of one's business, enterprise, et cetera? So, so through, like I said before, three or four decades of, of um, manufacturing innovation has resulted in uh, a significant number of important mission critical manufacturing systems um, from, from HMI SCADA all the way through your historians and your MES systems, your manufacturing intelligence, your quality solutions, your reliability centered maintenance applications. There, in most organizations, you have literally dozens of these large, important mission critical systems that all represent that stovepipe architecture, that data silo um, approach to manufacturing systems. And, and, and that's, that's acceptable because there was no alternative. But every single one of those applications is replicating a significant portion of their connectivity, cost and strategy and their data ingestion, data storage uh, infrastructure. We believe we can drive interoperability at the data level and at the application level by commoditizing that level of infrastructure. Every vendor has their own proprietary proprietary way of building that infrastructure. Sure, they leverage things like MQTT or OPC. Um, So there is some level of standardization at the network connectivity layer. But even that is a bit of a dog's breakfast. Um, but there is no common way for that data infrastructure to be implemented. And so that was one of the first technology challenges that SESME decided to tackle, to, to commoditize that layer. People don't want to pay for plumbing. It's infrastructure. But that happens to be where how we can we believe we can best enable interoperability and avoid that stovepipe architecture. And, Yet that yet another data silo mentality where every part of that stack, you are building uh, monolithic um, hardwired information models and hardwired applications against those hardwired information models with zero portability, which makes it so difficult to copy and paste anything you've done well at one plant to another plant, even if that plant is building the same product in the same way. Uh, it's very, very difficult to, to achieve economies of scale for these manufacturing systems. And so, so reducing cost and complexity, we believe, um, comes from the idea of interoperability and scalability and the notion that you can actually build portable technology components apart from a technology, apart from the actual vendor uh, unique proprietary vendor infrastructure. So that's the part that we focused on. And then, of course, open interfaces at every layer, at the edge, at the ingestion contextualization layer, and at the application layer. Open interfaces, open standards against which anyone in the industry could and should be um, developing, And uh, again, as opposed to their proprietary um, architecture. So it's we, we believe that, and this is our stated goal, that we help every technology provider achieve time to value um, much, much more quickly with a lower cost threshold as well. And that's how we get to, um, again, achieving our democratization efforts. Yeah, I'm hearing more comparisons between where manufacturing is at and where the IT world was at like 20 years ago, more and more in these type of conversations. And I like that you use the word interoperability multiple times. The audience out there hears that. I would say semi-frequently on this show, right? Especially when we're talking about AMRs and other new technology that are coming into this space. So that makes a lot of sense on the tech piece. Now let's talk about culture and mindset because that's the other thing that's been highlighted a lot. And and I know you do a few things in this regard. So what's your advice for adopting a smart manufacturing mindset and how does SESME help with that? Yeah, so so this has become a, a big a big deal for us, right? The 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 general prevailing sentiment is that this is not a technology problem, and I would agree with that. Um, it becomes a technology pro- problem because of our because of our mindset, but but the mindset itself is the most important piece. I think manufacturers have an opportunity to demand more from their ecosystem, from their supporting partner ecosystem, from from the technology providers, from their machine builders, from their systems integrators and consultants and their education ecosystem. And so we've we've actually created a brand new 
um, Smart Manufacturing Executive Council to create a platform for these ideas to drive the strategic uh, visibility and investment in these ideas. The notion that any individual vendor on their own, I'm sorry, any, any individual manufacturer on their own has some level of influence over their vendor partners of choice, over their um, support ecosystem. But collectively, 25, 30 of these great manufacturing companies represent a formidable voice to say, we recognize that there hasn't been a path forward in the past, but going forward, we're going to partner with organizations that embrace this idea of interoperability that can move us forward in ways that drive down our cost and complexity that help all manufacturers, not just the large manufacturers going forward. And so there's a, there's a more holistic view. Um, I think that's essential for manufacturers. The executive council met for the first time recently and one of the one of the key things that they mandated was this idea of a mindset and that we collectively work on a playbook for smart manufacturing. They identified eight stakeholders, specific functional stakeholders that all need to be addressed specifically to underscore the desired uh, strategies at education and behaviors for that stakeholder group and the role in terms of the role they play in creating a manufacturing mindset. We believe fundamentally that smart manufacturing as a mindset becomes the next generation of digital quality, of digital continuous improvement, of digital safety, that the same movements from 30, 40 years ago that transformed US manufacturing and became a mindset for quality, for manufacturing, for continuous improvement, we believe that that mindset today is a smart manufacturing mindset. How do we use data to accelerate what have largely become um, more rote and in many cases plateauing um, functions that can be dramatically accelerated through digitization efforts? And so that's, that's, that's what this idea of a mindset, a smart manufacturing mindset is all about. And Look for more to come. We Later this summer, we'll be launching version one of the Smart Manufacturing Playbook, which is all about how we inspire and instill and move this entire ecosystem towards the idea of a, a smart manufacturing mindset. Yeah, and there will be people that listen to this right when this interview comes out in June 2023, probably people that listen to this, you know, months, years later after that. So once that's out, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes to this episode so people have access to that. You know, one a, a couple of things you said there. One one specific question I have around a comment that you made that I really liked was that people need to demand more from their ecosystem, right? And I think we hear that a lot in industry, whether we're talking about cybersecurity, smart manufacturing, it's a, a don't go it alone approach, right? You need your partners. But I think you're the right person to answer this question because sometimes I feel like that's a bit of a nebulous comment, right? You need partners to help you out. So how do you find the right partners for something like this? Well, uh, I, I, I genuinely appreciate that question. We all have a profit motive. I, I guess Sesame doesn't worry not for profit, but we all have our success measures. We're, we're all coin operated in some way or other. Um, and, and, Recognizing that is, is obviously important. I think understanding the role of every player in that ecosystem in terms of how they support you and what their role in this notion of a smart manufacturing mindset and a transform, transformation needs to be given, given the kind of profit motive they have. In other words, a vendor who's selling you something um, can be a trusted advisor, absolutely. I've, I've been there my entire career and I've strived, I've always worked hard to be a trusted advisor. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't have an oar in the water in a specific domain. And so as a manufacturer, recognizing where can I go for this kind of education? I need to become a more savvy buyer of, of technology. I need to become a more savvy consumer of information so I can drive the culture in my organization in this direction. Where do I go? 
well, okay, well, here's here are the stakeholders that I can trust in this domain. And here are the technology providers that are aligned with the values that I'm looking for. And this gets back to the executive council, interoperability, scalability, security, sustainability. All of these values are key for my organization. And so that's what I'm looking for in my technology providers going forward. They've been proprietary in the past because there was no better alternative. There was no standard going forward. Do they espouse and do they invest in these ideas of interoperability and openness and crowdsourcing and collaboration and so on? So I think it's a new day. There's a new horizon in front of us. We have a, a new center of gravity around um, moving this ecosystem forward. That's that's what we're trying to advocate for and try trying to invest in here. It says me. We are the home of smart manufacturing here in the U.S. We're not doing this alone, by the way. We are working with some of the um, some of the brightest minds in Europe, in Germany, in Japan, and South Korea, to ensure that we're harmonizing our technology and our our knowledge centric approaches to smart manufacturing. But we're fundamentally trying to drive transformation through this idea of democratization and interoperability. And I think partners that espouse those values are the ones that uh, manufacturers can at least begin looking for in this space. Another question I have is you mentioned there are eight stakeholders, I believe, that need to be part of these smart manufacturing journeys. I, I was going to say, maybe we take this in a lightning round, like rattle them off type thing. If you know them off the top of your head, great. Otherwise, we can include it in the show notes. But I would imagine the listeners are curious. It's like, hey, I'm trying to do smart manufacturing. Who are these eight personas, these eight people that I need to have on board? I'll do my best. So so in no particular order of solve, there's the uh, corporate supply chain and manufacturing leadership. There's plant leadership. Um, and by the way, there's there's often such a dichotomy between what corporate invests in and wants for the organization and how the plants adopt it, how they're funded. What's the, excuse me, what's the funding model for uh, a plant to adopt um, a new strategic initiative or, t- or technology? So it's, it's corporate uh, supply chain and manufacturing leadership, plant leadership, it's the frontline workers in those plants. It's the it's the the operators on the shop floor, the technology providers, the, the vendors. It's the systems integrators and consultants. It's the uh, machine builder ecosystem. It's academia and it's the knowledge providers. It's the organizations out there across every walk of the manufacturing world that can provide education for different stakeholder groups. So I. I think that's the eight groups that uh, that we've the stakeholders that we've called out. Every one of them plays a key role, and without looking holistically at that entire set of stakeholders, um, you're not going to be firing on all cylinders, so to speak. I, I think you got it. I am going to list these off in the show notes, but I've got I've got some I got some hints in the chat during this conversation. So you got uh, if I'm going to recap them: operator, learning and training ecosystem, machine builders, systems integrators, technology providers, strategy consultants, and let's see, corporate manufacturing and supply chain leadership and plant leadership. I think you got. The, I mean, that was pretty. I was trying to type them and go as I was going as well. So hopefully anyone that's like at the gym right now didn't stop to take notes. Like I said, I'll have those in the show notes, but thank you for that quick lightning round there. I just had to ask when I'm like, oh man, there are eight personas. Who are those eight personas? So for those out there listening to this that are going through your smart manufacturing journeys, we've we've given you a lot today. Hopefully you've got some good takeaways from it. As we get to the end of the conversation, John, this won't be the last time we're hanging out. In fact, you know, probably I think what, four or five months from when this comes out in in June, we'll be hanging out in October in Greenville, South Carolina for South Tech and SESME's annual member meeting. So can you give us a little high-level overview on that before we wrap the conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled both to hang out with you there and to share with your audience here the, the, the smart manufacturing experience that we'll be hosting for about three days there in Greenville, South Carolina. First of all, it's a beautiful spot in October. Uh, if you've never been there, um, you're going to absolutely love the place. Second of all, this, this is potentially the greatest convening of smart manufacturing domain expertise in the nation, um, period. That We will have manufacturers there. We will have all of those stakeholder groups represented there. There will be a, a bunch of important workshops, 
terms of cultural uh, transformation, in terms of technology transformation, in terms of education across those different stakeholder groups. And of course, a massive uh, trade show. This is, this is an SME trade show called South Tech. We're co-hosting our smart manufacturing experience there with SME. Uh, our executive council will be represented there in significant force. And, and so we're, we're hoping that the entire nation will pay note, uh, take note and, and uh, show, join us there and being part of uh, what will arguably want to be one of the great manufacturing events of the year. And, and one thing I want to highlight, because I'm, tr- I'm thinking of, hey, what do you get out of this event that you don't get anywhere else? When I think of like the people that are going to be there that are represented, you know, on your council, you have a lot of end user representation, right? It's not just technology providers. So, you know, I'm giving some of my impressions, but in your mind, what's the thing that, hey, at this event, this is something people will get here that you're not going to be able to get from a different one that, that you could go to in the year? Yeah. So, so I love that question. There a couple of really important things. Um, the executive council, by the way, consists of 28 of the most uh, forward-looking, uh, mature manufacturing leaders and, and companies in this country, from the Procter & Gamble's of the world to the Pfizer's, ExxonMobil, uh, Corning, General Mills, et cetera. Every, every uh, Toyota, Ford, GM, Stellantis, every industry, um, every discipline. Um, so it's it's exclusively the executive council. Uh, I should I should highlight is is exclusively manufacturing executives who have both OT and IT experience and business and technology experience and are there uh, both for the sake of their own companies and what they can learn, but also to help the the ecosystem, the manufacturing ecosystem more broadly. So there's there's both giving and taking, and I think that in and of itself is a unique thing. Second. We represent an ecosystem. SESME itself is a not-for-profit organization. The things that we fund, the things that we bring back to you and create and invest for, invest in for manufacturing, um, is done not as a vendor, but as a as an, a vendor agnostic organization. And so, ho- hopefully, that gives us a level of credibility and, and trustworthiness for the ecosystem that uh, that you would all benefit from. And last but not least, we do represent a great set of technology providers. The, the, the vendors that are there are all advocating for and espousing the values that SESME is investing in that, that I've been highlighting for the, for the past uh, few minutes of our conversation here, Chris. These are forward-looking, uh, disruptive, highly innovative technology providers, vendors that are here with us to drive and accelerate adoption of smart manufacturing in the U.S. And so those those things, I, I think, be, between the insights, the sort of vendor agnostic nature of much of the content that we're bringing to the marketplace, um, those collectively represent a very unique opportunity for every stakeholder group in this space to learn, to advance, and also to share their perspective. If you have insights, if you have experience, if you have intellectual capital that you want to bring to this space, let us know. We would love to create a platform for you to 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 share that with this with this market. Yeah. And I'm I'm gonna have links to sign up to South Tech, the smart manufacturing experience over in the show notes page. This is going to be a pretty meaty show notes page with more than a few sesame resources for sure. You know, I'm excited about it because you're right, you're highlighting some of the most some of the biggest names in manufacturing in the U.S. You have the technology providers that are bringing it to life. Very similar to how we've talked ecosystem in this conversation and the urgency of adopting smart manufacturing. I look at this as a really practical spot to go beyond the buzzword of smart manufacturing and figuring out, hey, what do you do with all that data you have? How do you get the right mindset to really go in figure out what you need to do and start taking actions so that you don't get stuck in pilot purgatory. I tried to summarize as much of that our conversation as I could in that 30 seconds. So Well done, Chris. Well done. Yeah. It's been great having you on. John, is there anything you wish I would have asked you? Any topics we haven't covered yet before we wrap this conversation today? Well, I would just wrap by saying, first of all, thanks again for the opportunity to have this conversation, Chris. I appreciate your insights and, and the depth of your experience and, and the way you got at this conversation. I would invite folks that are hearing us here to engage, uh, whether it's to, to, to learn and to, to, to take or whether it's to contribute and give back. Um, we, we work with every kind of organization. 
everywhere in their maturity journey. And um, we would welcome the chance to add you to a, a great and a rapidly growing ecosystem that's here for the betterment of the, of, of the marketplace as a whole, but also doing very practical things to advance the state of smart manufacturing here in this country. John, it's been a pleasure ha- having you on. I look forward to hanging out with you on October 24th through 26th out in the Carolinas, out in Greenville. Thanks so much for taking the time. For everyone listening, there will be opportunities to connect with Sesme and John over in the show notes page. And with that, John, thanks so much for taking the time to chat about smart manufacturing in the shadow of the Tetons today. Love it, Chris. Love the environment. Love the conversation. Appreciate the chance to do this with you. Catch you soon. Thanks so much. You know, in retrospect, since this is Manufacturing Happy Hour, I feel like I should have created like a drinking game for this episode because I was just re-listening to the episode, to the intro. I don't know how many times we said smart manufacturing, but I feel like it was a lot. So, you know, hey, if you if you did listen to this during happy hour and poured yourself a beverage and you did keep track of that, well, I'd be interested to know how many times we said smart manufacturing. I know I've added it at least two times here just in the outro alone. Anyway, if you want to learn more, if you want to access any resource from today's episode, you can do that at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 142. That'll take you to the show notes page for episode 142, plus links to the Smart Manufacturing Executive Council, their monthly web series called the Smart Manufacturing Mindset, and of course, South Tech. We'd love for you to join us in October in Greenville. Look into signing up for that. South Tech, it's going to be a great time. Also featuring the Smart Manufacturing Experience, we will see you in the Carolinas. It's going to be a great group, and I, for one, am stoked to go out there. Also, hey, thank you to our sponsor today, Traction. Thank you for everything you do to the show. If you want to learn more about them, you can go to traction.com or manufacturinghappyhour.com traction. And don't forget to listen to our episode with their founder, Igor Marinelli. Finally, hey, call to action for you. If you learned something new in today's episode, if you liked it, if you think there's something valuable there, please share a link to this episode on LinkedIn with your number one smart manufacturing takeaway. All right, I think that's enough for this week. I'm not going to say it again. You've heard the word quite a bit. But with that, we're going to wrap things up. Here's the outro. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.